Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Dan Buckland, Medical Director of Duke University Health System. Dan is also an assistant professor at Duke University, as well as a deputy human system risk manager at NASA. So you know he's no stranger to the latest and greatest technology. However, Dan joins us on the program today to talk about Duke University's unique approach to AI technologies, often using models that are at least two years old and have requisite expert training, and using virtual care as a last resort whenever data is showing in-person experiences are holding back patients and caregivers. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Dan, thanks so much for being with us on the program today. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, we spoke in our preliminary conversations before hopping on this call about what makes Duke University Health System so interesting from a technology standpoint and the sort of arm's length relationship that the organization has with the latest tools and on purpose. Can you explain how that works for our listeners as to help us color your answers about the problems with technology in the healthcare space as a whole? Yeah, basically we, I try not to use, and we, when applying stuff in a healthcare workflow, I don't want the latest and greatest in artificial intelligence or algorithmic thinking in that. I want something that's been basically allowed to fail or mature outside before it's being applied to a thing where healthcare is being applied to the patients themselves. And so we try to use a rule of thumb of like things that have been out for two or plus years so that the kind of the subtleties, the limitations of the technology or to the algorithms or artificial intelligence can kind of be worked out and known. So we know what we're getting before we apply it to something that can affect patient care. Yeah. And, and just on, on the fact of that maturity of it being two years old, you know, you're, you're saying, you know, the kinks have been worked out. I'm also wondering, is there also training that goes into that or is that two years worth of expert feedback that that model is getting in order to function more properly in, in healthcare workflows? Yeah. So usually, yeah, we use I mean, as with any kind of like new technology that we kind of want that kind of GitHub um, yeah. kind of like Internet basis of like, oh, where have you gone wrong? Where has this failed in kind of my organization with my use case? Is that, is that that kind of knowledge base to be kind of established already so we can pull from, so we can use the lessons learned of other industries or even other healthcare industries before we do it. Like largely, we find the actual artificial intelligence, the technology portion of applying things into a healthcare system is only 10 to 15% of the solving the problem itself. It's right. whoever the end user of the technology in the healthcare system is, is 80 to 85 percent of the actual implementation of that problem and so i want the the model or the technology to be kind of rock solid that i know when the when the implementation doesn't work i want it to be known that it's my implementation that is the error that can be fixed and not some subtlety that someone has not found in the technology itself it makes my troubleshooting problem solving a lot more straightforward Right. Listeners have heard me talk a lot, especially with Gen AI tools, about a fog of war. And it sounds like that that when you're using the latest of the latest, it's just that much harder to try to discern. Is it me or is it the fact that this is new? The other point I wanted to just nail down was how you guys treat virtual care in terms of, um, you know, in, in those preliminary discussions we had, we I, I got the impression that it's kind of seen as a last resort as compared to prioritizing in-person consultations with doctors. What's the priority? there vis-a-vis -vis how you kind of treat technology as a whole? 
I would say, so virtual care or telemedicine or whatever, why wouldn't, the way we kind of look at it mm -hmm. is in terms of the groups I'm in, and me as just a, as a practicing emergency physician, it's not a, a last resort, it's where's the appropriate place for it. Right, right. So right. There's a spectrum of care where stuff can be done. Like a phone call has been telemedicine as practice for 40, 50 years, right? That still is a very powerful telemedicine modality to talk to a patient, figure out what's going on and something like that without being to lay hands on them. And then to the other end of when I work in the emergency room, right? Being able to see a person in front of me, smell them, which is a big thing in the emergency room. And yeah. all the, the context around them is, is important to get what I need. And then there is remains a gap between those two where the addition of video or a way I can see that person while talking to them does add to the phone call, but maybe I don't need it, right? I can usually, right. like, there's lots of stuff I can do with that phone call or by email that doesn't require a video feed that just adds more complexity to the interaction or more the infrastructure required to do it, right? I can right. be walking through the hospital on the way to another visit and be on the phone with someone and discuss a problem they have. Having to say, okay, well, we have to schedule this so I can find a quiet room and I can be on video with appropriate lighting so I can see you and deal with all the technology you have to, you as the patient have to deal with. Usually there's not many use cases where that's essential for the kind of care in the acute care setting is provided, right? So right. that would be the, it, the finding that right use case for it. And what we find through the pandemic and through all the recent technologies and that have made it easier to deploy telemedicine is that the use cases for telemedicine as, as seen as video interaction between a provider and a, and a patient is not as wide as we had hoped. And so there's these things that we can a phone call or emails or the asynchronous messaging between providers can get you a lot of weight there. And, but having that backup option of the telemedicine for when it is needed to prevent an in-person visit is valuable. It's just not as valuable as we hoped it was in 2020 when we thought it was going to be. Right. It just seems like very scrutinizing in every possible channel. And obviously, you know, AI is not capable of replicating smells yet. We need to get to VR. We need to get to like brain computer inter interfaces. So there's no danger of, of AI or virtual reality, you know, usurping more of kind of the place that in-person consultations have anytime soon. But now that we've just established, you know, Duke University Health, that perspective where you're coming from in the healthcare industry, let's let's ask some important questions. Where are you seeing the technology create friction in the patient experience as compared to the rest of the healthcare industry? Yeah. So technology, largely in the way I interact and stuff like that. And so sometimes the patients are is aware of how technology is causing more friction, right? Like so or an example before of the telemedicine, right? When you can't, when you have your appointment for 10 o'clock and you can't get your computer to log on at 10 or the provider can't get their computer to log on at 10, that turns what could be a two minute phone call into a 15 minute IT session to it, it work out that everyone can hear each other and stuff like that to a thing where you're describing, oh, my ear hurts and I have a fever. Okay, well, let's try some antibiotics or something like that. That didn't require me to see you. That 10 minutes of fee work causes friction and thing. And other places where it can cause Friction without the patients realizing it is every time a new technology is applied within a workflow, a healthcare workflow, there is training and burn in and kind of like reestablishing the efficiency of a workflow that will change things that the patient may from the, we strive whenever possible to keep the opaque to the patient, the back end, 
resource allocation decisions, right? We want the surgery to be available when they need it, but we're doing a lot of things with technology on the back end to make that true. But we ch are changing things, right? They know that they get a phone call saying surgery starts at this time on this day, right? That part has not changed. How we're deciding what time they do surgery, that has some change to it as well. And so with the turnover in affiliated healthcare employees, right, who do the phone calls and do that setup, right, the big healthcare employment turnover, that friction of training new people to come on and deal with these new kind of bespoke IT infrastructures to deal with what these resource allocations is going to cause friction to the patient without them realizing it because these the, the users don't always understand what they are using if this is the first time using it. And so that's the kind of thing of the amount of human factors in healthcare, both in safety and in just implementation is 80% of all of these technology problems, even though the technology itself isn't the issue causing the friction. Right, right. It, it's it, the technology is not the problem. It's it's to a certain extent how inoperable it is with other with other systems. And I know kind of the big you know headline to talk about right now across many industries is is generative AI. I know it's been discussed in wide depth just in terms of that of being able to be very applicable to the problem of interoperability of bespoke uh, healthcare IT systems. But how are you seeing business leaders using data tools, large language models, generative AI, or even you know traditional older AI to solve these challenges? So like you kind of put together, right? The generative AI field is a, it's a rapidly moving developing field of what its capabilities are, like the new multi multimodal ones have all these kind of possibilities to it. But kind of at the end of the day, Healthcare is a system built that always, every te new technology has to be backward compatible to a fax machine, right? So right. I don't know what clinic I'm talking to or some of that, but at some level, it may not be the primary use of communication, but when I'm on the phone with someone and the different IT systems are not meant to talk to each other, the answer is always, ah, I guess you can just fax it, right? And so these generative AI systems are being used with this idea in my perspective to produce the content appropriate for a fax, right? Mm -hmm. And so you are setting up these systems where also using large language models derived for and to generative AI, that they are also reading the faxes, right? So you have these right. language processing tools, reading unstructured narrative text and also generating unstructured narrative text, which seems like a very inefficient way to IT systems to talk to each other, right? And there is a larger effort for healthcare infrastructure to talk to each other. But it has, again, not been as progressed as we would have liked to have been since the 2000s when all the regulations came online. Right. But I think, see that as kind of where the first uses of all these generative AI things is to continue to make things interoperable with faxes. Yeah, we were we were talking about faxes in, in the lead up to our discussion, and I know I had made that kind of comparison. Everybody can have a good laugh at this and in, in how I exchange it over emails, but it almost seems like using fax machines with large language models is like, well, I need a horse and buggy to go down the street, but if I want to go to Paris, I have a rocket ship. Just that difference in, in, in technology. But how you're describing it and what it needs to do, it sounds like fax machines actually are, you know, if, uh, as compared to anywhere else in the economy, they're actually integral in healthcare systems and actually they shouldn't really be going anywhere anytime soon. The technology needs to build itself around that basic modality. Right. It, it basically is. So like I can have, if, if you have two clinics, like who literally will share a medical office part, but are of two separate medical systems, 
right? They share a parking lot, they share a wall, but they're from two different healthcare systems. The most common modality between them, if they don't share, for instance, like the Epic Care Everywhere system, if they have two different electronic medical records, is going to be faxing back and forth across that wall information. Right. right? A patient walks across and says, oh, I was just over there clinic here. They told me to come over here. They're like, well, I don't have their information. They got to send it over and that's got to be fax compatible is the way to communicate that if there's not an existing email or data use agreement between those institutions. Absolutely. And I think this just helps color like just a different perspective on technology, how the tech stacks in the layers need to work together, no matter, you know, what era they're from. There's a usefulness to it. I'm in music, so it almost sounds like fax machines are like the vinyl of <laughs> of healthcare. They they won't really die because they're just so functional in, in terms of the systems. But it, even just in terms of using older technology like fax machines, knowing that that's not going to go anywhere. Where, where is the place of generative AI in decreasing the overarching tech debt? How can it, you know, track the behavior of healthcare professionals to make sure, you know, they're not putting in the extra clicks or it like, you know, the more that they're using facts or the more that older technology like facts may become necessary. That's not what's slowing them down. So I think the way that generative AI may become useful and is in the instead of replicating the entire kind of healthcare system, but the interspecialty or interprofessional kind of translation that maybe needs to occur, right? So if a cardiologist has a question for an endocrinologist, then they use the same vocabulary, but different languages, right? So people, they will use the same words that mean different things, right? So fatigue in endocrinology means a different word in cardiology. Right. And so something that recognizes that difference. And so for a cardiologist to say, can you summarize the endocrinology notes in cardiology speak is something that is something useful in that way, if that training and tuning can be done in a safe and uh, cohesive way, right? So this is beyond the, the patient. So make this at a things I think are really good is that I found have been useful in the generative AI world is take my note and write it at the level of someone who only has finished elementary school in Spanish, right? So like wow. that's the best use of those kind of things instead of coming up with new ideas of there's all this interprofessional, right? Kind of communication to smooth those gears because it takes a lot of time for me yeah. as a, when I'm at, in my professional setting to say, okay, where are you coming from? Let's sit down and discuss it at your level so you understand, right? Right. If there's a way for that kind of thing to kick off and smooth those gears, then I think that would be helpful and add some efficiencies to that communication process. Yeah. And when I when I talk to folks who are developing bespoke models for the healthcare industry, they talk a lot about tone and jargon, just the problem you were saying in the last answer of, you know, the same term means different things in different medical fields, but also tone in being able to relate to the to the patient, you know, be at their level. Yeah, some really mind blowing stuff that you're laying down here. And we're I know we're not quite there yet with the technology, but that's really on the horizon. That's like I'd put that in almost guaranteed 
territory for for the next five years. But I'm the only one who's going to make that prediction. I'll I'll use my space on this platform. I think we've done an, uh, enough episodes on it that I can at least make that claim. But I'll make that claim. I won't I won't, I won't ask you to back that up. It just vis a vis other episodes we've had on the show. But Dan, this has been a lot of fun and very very eye opening, just in terms of like how technology gets layered and where you're using this in the whole ecosystem of technological development. So thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Before we close out today's show, I wanted to make a really quick point about something Dan said in his last answer that I thought was really revelatory. We just actually wrapped up a a white paper with Centaur Labs, whose CEO, Eric Duhame, was on the podcast. That's the AI and Business podcast. A couple of months ago, really, really incredible episode talking about the level of expert feedback needed in model development for healthcare. And I think what Dan was talking about in terms of the end game of at least a few LLM functions in healthcare being that it can translate a problem or a scenario in the speak of a cardiologist and then be able to translate that into terms that everybody can understand or even more specifically say in English as a second language speaker or at least being able to translate it to their native language or at least be able to articulate just based on educational background, you know, really using LLMs in that way to fine tune how we're communicating with people across the enterprise, especially in a regulated space like healthcare. Again, that episode is with Centaur Labs CEO Eric Duhame. If you want to check that out, we published that episode at the end of August. That's the August 31st episode of the AI and Business podcast. You can check it out there on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And on behalf of Daniel and the entire team at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business podcast.